Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's a great, a great pleasure and an honor to to have uh, His Excellency Omar Saif Khobash with us, who, as you all know, I mean, I'm introducing someone that you all know as, as well as I do, who's an author, a philanthropist, I think a public intellectual by virtue of this book, and he was before. Um, he is, of course, ambassador to, of the UAE to Russia uh, since 2009, which is why we haven't seen him at NYU AD since 2009. But it's a great... Um, honor for him to visit the campus. And there's a particular reason for that, which is that Omar uh, was given um, license by the government of Abu Dhabi to have the original conversations with President John Sexton that ended with the agreement to bring and build Abu Dhabi, uh, NYU Abu Dhabi here in, in Abu Dhabi. So without Omar, there wouldn't be this place. We wouldn't be sitting here in this auditorium. So uh, Omar, this is the first time you in the campus, I think. I've snuck in before. You snuck in, okay. But <laughs> just, just to see. Yeah. But here you're really here. And uh, it's well, welcome. I hope you like what you see. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I'm sure as well as, you know, this book, you know that uh, there are many online interviews with Omar Khubash, um, which I've looked at and they're very interesting. Of course, Omar is, is always supremely eloquent in all those interviews, talking about this book and other things that pertain to his uh, role as, as, as an ambassador, in, the, in a very key role, uh, ambassador to Russia. Um, but there was one interview that on CNN which caught my attention. There was one particular phrase which caught my attention because there, he and the interviewer were talking about Syria and Omar said... Uh, well, on Syria, Syria is a thing that concerns us in the Gulf. And he paused and said, as Arabs, as Muslims, and as human beings. And it struck me that that triad, that, uh, that three-part statement, really reminded me of his book, because it seems to me a book about being, Arab, being Muslim and being a human being. And I added, in my mind, I, saw, I added the idea of being an individual. Um, and those three ideas are something I want to come back to as I make my short introduction, I promise it will be short. Um, so, Omar Khobash was educated, uh, those of you who read the book will know that he was educated in part in Quran school during certain summers. Very short in period, uh, intense. But he was educated in the UAE. I think Shoei Fat was what I heard him tell someone. And then he arranged, as it says in the book, to go to rugby at uh, 15, at the age of 15. Um, of course, rugby is a very famous school. It's probably one of the most famous schools in the world. So it's perhaps the only school that's given its name to a sport. I actually associate rugby with something else, and I'll come to that because I want to uh, reprise those three themes. After rugby, uh, Omar Obash went to Oxford and studied law. Uh, at the end of the first year, he went to Mecca, as we all know from reading the book. <laughs> And I was wondering from reading the book whether you actually went back to Oxford, but it seems you did because you got a BA. 
that, sorry? You got a BA in law from Oxford. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I did. So, I... So, <laughs> I have a you didn't stay in Mecca. Um, uh, ten years after getting his BA in law, he studied math, mathematics at UCL as an external student, which is some combination. Um, on the Wikipedia, <laughs> I, I think it is. So he's very much a, a Renaissance a man. Um, one of the things that I found out from Wikipedia is that he spent five years trekking. And it sounds like uh, the way the Wikipedia phrase uh, is, it sounds like he went on one trekking tip trip that took him five years. So we can ask him about that. I think it just means that he's a, a great hiker and a trekker. Uh, we can ask him questions about that. Um, so let's go back to rugby, because rugby is, although the school is associated with the sport, I was associated with Matthew Arnold, the literary critic, a very famous literary critic of the 19th century, who was not headmaster of rugby, but his father was, Thomas Arnold. Um, now, the reason I bring this up is because Omar, among the many things that he is interested in is literature. But this is where I come back to Arabness, because I associate him as a philanthropist with the promotion of Arabic literature, um, writ large. Um, so he works for Arab literature and Arabic literature, there's a slight distinction, as sponsor of the Saif Khubash Bani Pal Prize for Arabic Literary Translation, named after his um, father as founding trustee of IPAF, which is the International Prize for Arabic uh, Fiction. Uh, as a publisher also, he started a publishing house called Kalim, uh, which... Which fizzled out into bankruptcy. Okay. <laughs> Still, the uh, intention was there. Uh, he's also uh, a supporter of the arts, and, and of course many of you know, I'm sure you all know, that he founded the Third Line uh, gallery, which is, I think, the most famous, one of the most famous, with Barajil and others, uh, galleries for contemporary art. In other roles, he's, he has many roles as advisor, and, and one of the key ones is uh, as an advisor for the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation and Political Violence, which is based at King's College London. And, of course, that seems to be something we can talk about because it's uh, obviously a subject that feeds into this book, although what one notices about the title of the centre is that it doesn't have the word Muslim in it. Um, so we have to understand radicalisation and political violence more broadly, something we can talk about. So to get back to the other theme, the second theme, Muslim, Muslimness, there's a passage in the book that, among many that I found striking, uh, where uh, Ahmad Khobash talks about the fact that internecine fights within the Muslim community writ large make us lose our humanity. And that, of course, brings us to the third theme, which is so important in this book, being human, being a responsible human being. And for me, that equates with being a responsible individual. And, of course, that's what the book leads to in its dynamic of structure. The argument moves towards the responsibility of the individual. Um, I'd like to... Just read one passage before sitting down and giving the word to uh, Ambassador Obash. Um, we will see during the course of this evening, if we follow uh, Omar's own words, 
or his advice to his son, uh, him turning into a marble statue, because he advises his son to engage in discourse and advises him more particularly to speak in public and hear what people think of you. Uh, you will refine your understanding of yourself in the same way that a sculptor, a sculptor releases a figure from a block of marble, which is a wonderfully eloquent phrase. So when I read that phrase, I no longer felt guilty about uh, inviting our work to speak in public <laughs> at this forum. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ambassador Omar That's my <laughs> So just a few words on the format. I'm, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Ambassador Obash uh, a few questions, and then uh, that'll lead into a Q&A with, with, with all of you. And I'm sure the best thing for me to do is to ask a few succinct questions and then shut up. And, <laughs> Can I ask? Please. Uh, can you call me Omar? Of course. Right. Thank you. Um, so, one of, let's start with an easy question, which might be a difficult question. Why did you write this book in English? Oh, uh, I, I've been asked that. Um, I grew up in a household where we didn't speak Arabic. My father died when I was very young, uh, six, and uh, so my mother is Russian. We grew up... Uh, with some basic Russian, uh, we didn't uh, we didn't philosophize in Russian, um, but uh, uh, and and English. Uh, so my Arabic is actually twenty years uh, behind my English. Uh, I hope uh, that it catches up one day, uh, inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I hopefully uh, in the next month or so I will be actually coming out and doing talks in Arabic. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, I have a, a couple of challenges. I've been invited to go on Sky News Arabia uh, to have an in-depth uh, discussion uh, about the themes of the book. So I'm very excited about that. Mm -hmm. I'm just choosing which accent that I, I will, I will <laughs> use. I'm, I'm thinking of Lebanese or Libyan. No. <laughs> well, any accent, as long as it's not Moroccan. <laughs> um, no offence intended. But, but of course, the fact that you wrote it in English broadens the audience in the first place, because you're yeah. writing to Muslims. Well, it, it begs the question, what is your readership? Who are you? Well, you were writing this book for, say, for your son, but yeah. obviously I do you had a readership in mind. And... Well, you know, as I wrote the book, I realized that my son is actually much more mature and self-confident than, than I was at his age. So I then realized I was writing the book for myself, addressing my own 15-year-old self, uh, and, you know, sort of putting to rest certain issues that uh, had, had remained open for many, many years. Uh, and to be honest, you know, completing the book, uh, I, I still hope that my son Sif reads it, um, but, you know, he has a lifetime ahead of him to do that. Uh, I, uh, I found that I, you know, I had an immense amount of energy to focus on other mm -hmm. things the minute I finished it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also say something quickly about, about language. Uh, one of the reasons why I think I'm uh, blessed to be able to explore the world through the English language is because there is so much out there that you can access immediately. And one of the problems that I faced in, in educating myself in the Arabic language was that there is a kind of, um, the, the, for whatever reasons, cultural or political reasons or religious reasons, we censor a whole bunch of arguments. And so you're not exposed to those sets of ideas. Um, I, uh, and, and just as an illustration of that, I, I was speaking to a Palestinian Israeli Christian uh, who actually is a lawyer for the, uh, I believe it's the Greek, Greek Orthodox Church in Jerusalem. So he's fluent in, in, in Hebrew and Arabic. Mm. And I asked him, what language do you prefer to read in? And he said, I prefer to read in Hebrew. 70% of what he reads is in Hebrew. And he said, it's because, again, there's so much more that is discussed. And this is a reflection of the kind of uh, political environment in which uh, discussion takes place. Mm -hmm. 
So I, one of the things that I'm trying to do in this, in this book is to clarify a set of ideas, uh, open up a certain space, and then um, be able to represent that in an Arab environment. Mm -hmm. Have you already been approached or have thought about it being translated into Arabic? No, it is, it is being translated at the moment, and, and, and there is a, a publisher who has uh, actually read it and, and decided that he wants to do it. So, yeah, it's happening. <laughs> That's good. Um, and you'll have to buy the Arabic version, please. I will. <laughs> So just to go back to one of the things you said, I mean, I've got this question, which is titled The Father and the Son. And you, you mentioned, and I've heard you say this before in another interview, that you, um, you're addressing your 15-year-old um, son, Safe, but at the same time addressing yourself at 15, uh, in some sense, or writing what you were you know, revisiting that, that time when you were 15 and struggling with the issues. Um, but I, I wonder... If I, it sounds a bit convoluted, but in, if in a sense you had your, your own father in mind when you were writing this. Um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the key kind of features of the book, uh, is that I uh, wished that I had had my father, who had had his own very interesting political and religious experiences, to be able at least to guide me uh, at, at the age of 12, you know, 15, 18, uh, 25, 32, and onwards. Uh, to be able to just give me some kind of, uh, you know, psychological uh, backbone. Uh, and, you know, when you grow up without a father or without a parent uh, or, or without that kind of protection, uh, then, you know, you do feel a certain, set of, a certain sense of exposure. But you also feel a certain sense of freedom in which you can construct your own uh, understanding. Uh, I think it may be a little more difficult. Um, it certainly wasn't easy for me, but I feel that now I have a, a deeper, more solid kind of foundation in the way I approach uh, things. So... Five years ago, I wouldn't have spoken like this. Uh, today, I believe uh, so fundamentally in the idea of the dignity of the individual uh, and that the starting point of any uh, discussion of politics, ethics, morality must start with individual dignity, uh, that I'm very, very pleased to be able to go out and speak in public about it. Uh, five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to say that. Mm -hmm. um, the significance of, of, of your son's name, Safe, is not... It, it, somehow it, it grabbed me, it grabbed well, my attention, the fact that it was yeah, it, it's your father's name. So. It's, it's quite common in, in yeah, our part of the world yeah. that we would name, uh, you know, we can't yeah. name our children after ourselves, so we do the next best thing. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. And your other son is called Abdullah. After my yeah. uh, wife's father. After wife's yeah, father. Yeah, okay. yeah. Patriarchal society. But I was like, I was, uh, something struck me, and this might sound silly, and perhaps I should ask uh, another question, but it did strike me, because safe means sorting. Yes, exactly, yeah. And you, a lot of the book is about um, you know, resistance to yeah, I know, the social irony. violence. Yeah. But it's, not, I mean, it's, it's an area that all cultures have. You know, when you talk about identity in, in, in the West, you talk about a coat of arms. Yeah. It's a, arms are a part of identity. True. Yeah. Um, I couldn't have called him flower, though. You know, no. That would have been even worse. Yeah. So... <laughs> uh, <laughs> No. I, I, I'm actually lucky because I was able to choose my own name, Amar, uh, which I'm told doesn't mean anything. Uh, uh, <laughs> so there's no content to it. Uh, whereas, yeah, you're right, Saif, uh, Abdullah, and all of those other uh, names with meanings, they carry meaning. And mm -hmm. uh, I wonder, you know, I think it does have an effect on the way you might look at the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Every Khadfan I know is a very tough guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um. So moving on just to the, the content of the book, I mean, one, one of the, and the, the book 
if I might say, is, is, a, is a brilliant book because of its clarity, Thank its you. limpid, pellucid uh, style and the argument that, that comes from that incredibly accessible style, eloquent style. So I feel, I feel it coils around certain subjects and develops, so you revisit certain subjects yep. as, the, as the 25 or so chapters unfold. One of my um, uh, critics or reviewers said uh, it, it gets repetitive, so I assume that's what... <laughs> no, I don't think it's... Rep- I, th- I think it consolidates an argument but okay, through different good. perspectives. Yeah. Um, Excellent. But one of the themes that does recur, of course, is, the, is that of your discussion of, of Muslim clerics yeah. uh, the power structures within in Islam. Mm. And, um, I mean, in some sense, one could say they get a bad press um, mm, yeah. for reasons that you've explained, and I understand. Um, and you even, but you do, by the end of the book, discuss the differences between the kind of sermons you were hearing mm-hmm. when you were younger and the kind of sermons you were hearing today. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering more broadly whether you... Do you have a sense that Muslim clerics are a monolith in the Islamic world, or whether really that depends on what country, what region you're looking at? Yeah, I, I wonder. Um, there's a very important cleric uh, who uh, speaks out uh, against violence uh, and in the name of peace. Uh, and uh, I saw him, actually, it was on, there was a post today uh, where he was quoted as saying, uh, the only people who can bring peace to Islam is us, the clerics. I thought, well, no, I'm not sure that's true anymore. Uh, And it's part of what I try and uh, say in the book, uh, is that the clerics have, uh, well, the fact that they call themselves clerics, they refer to themselves as a clerical class. They, uh, you know, Adama al-Din or Shiyukh al-Din. They desire to uh, label themselves in a certain way, and they present themselves to society in a certain way. Uh, and what I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, all of the qualifications that you need to become one of those people are not necessarily the qualifications that are um, uh, entirely useful. I thought somebody cut my electricity there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're not entirely useful. I mean, uh, I, I, I've sat with clerics and some of the most wonderful, open-minded, liberal clerics, but they will refuse to allow me into the argument. They'll say, look, you, know, you, can, you can speak all you want, but we will decide for you. And they have no shame in saying, we will decide for you. Um, one of these clerics is a, is a convert to Islam. Uh, and you know, he, he's brought up in, in, a, in a completely different environment, a Western Christian environment. And for him to come in to the religion, to learn our sources, uh, to, to study our sources, and then to impose uh, our tradition as he sees it onto me, I find objectionable. Uh, and so you know, I thought to myself, what is this like? It's a bit like... Uh, me going to the doctor, and the doctor looking at me and saying, well, okay, I'm going to prescribe the following kind of medicines for you, without even asking me what I feel or what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I would hope that there was at least a little more interaction. Uh, And very often the clerics will say, listen, you know, uh, let the baker bake his bread, let the doctor do his medicine, I will do religion. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. you don't know enough. Um, But the the reality is today with with the internet, you can go and see your doctor, and you are already very, very well equipped uh, to uh, interrogate the doctor, to judge that doctor, to say, you know, I, I'm not sure that you're on the right track. I'm not sure that you're um, fully taking fully the responsibility that, that you have towards me as your patient. And so I'd say that maybe the, the clerics uh, as, as a class should begin to think 
that there is something else going on here, that, the, that they have in a certain uh, way, with the rise of radical Islam, with the rise of uh, uh, kind of um, you know, strange online clerics, they've, this is a result of them having lost a certain amount of authority and credibility in the first place. Mm-hmm. For them to then say, no, give that credibility and authority back, for me, it's too late for that. So they, I would suggest, uh, and I think that the clerics are an important, uh, an extremely important player in our moral universe here, uh, is that they should now wonder why it is that they lost that credibility and authority in the first place, and how it is that they might re-engage with uh, certainly young people in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. Do you find they've lost that credibility uh, across the board? No, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about certain kind of cases. Uh, I, I do think that behind the scenes, a lot of people do ask questions. And those questions are usually put down with a very simple, listen, you don't know. You haven't spent 30 years studying the Quran, the Hadith, and all of the traditions. And therefore, you don't have the qualities or the qualifications to even begin the discussion. I say that having a moral discussion is something that is easily accessible. Anybody in this room uh, can do it. Uh, and I think that anybody that you would, you, pretty much anybody who has lived uh, up into his, his teens will, will have a certain understanding of right and wrong, uh, will be able to, uh, 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 certainly feels injustice being committed against him or her, uh, and, and therefore can, can immediately begin to present a, a reasoned objection to certain situations. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think that uh, kind of logic, rationality, uh, and, and sort of uh, good faith is something that the majority of the population can't access. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hoping that you would say, this is amazing. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you looked so glum there. <laughs> no, I was just thinking of, um, of the relationship um, yeah. in the book between the present and the past. Yes. Because obviously what, when you... Were, when you talk about the, the, the clerics, you're, you're sort of challenging their monopoly on the past, in a sense, in some sense. Uh, um, yeah, sure. So that I'm just wondering what the qualifications are for someone to take on your advice, uh, given that if, if, if you adopt so much of what you write oh. as an individual and, become, think, and you think for yourself and become a responsible... Um, individual in the way that you 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 sort of promulgate, um, you're, you're bound to come across people that you have to argue with, um, who yeah. who, ha- who have this sort of this panoply of, of knowledge about the past. I'm I'm gonna uh, you know f- first of all I kind of wagered a bet that uh, uh, that there were a certain group of people out there who would find the idea of discussing issues openly interesting. Yeah, not horrifying, not terrifying. I'm also going to say that I believe there is a new, new class uh, of clerics who see the potential to actually uh, introduce a new type of uh, language and a new way of dealing with ethical and, and, and kind of ethical, difficult ethical issues. I think one of the examples of that is um, a preacher in, the, I think it was the 1990s, Amr al-Khalid, right? He came out, and he didn't have any particular background in Islamic uh, uh, theology, uh, but he had a positive message, and you know, for some reason, for one reason or another, uh, most of the message ended up with, you know, put on the veil. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I'm not sure why he was so obsessed with the veil, but he was definitely speaking to people in an Islamic context, uh, and one that, uh, that, that asked them to, to do their best uh, in their own circumstances. It wasn't particularly uh, religious. And I thought, well, you know, that is an example of somebody going beyond the normal kind of category of cleric to appeal in the position of a cleric 
but with a different style of language. Mm -hmm. um, I, thought, I think there are kind of um, separate examples of that, discrete examples of mm -hmm. that. Uh, and, and that uh, you'll find, I believe, that people will ultimately look online and begin to look for, in, in this marketplace of Islamic ideas, they will say, well, this, this person means mm -hmm. more to me than that person, right? I just have a feeling if you take the spirit of your argument, there will be certain people who will be able to spout, you know, um, prophetic hadith that somehow contradict the the force of what you're arguing. Um, in, in any individual you know, situation, yeah. that, I'm not yeah. saying that no, no, I mean, the, the book sort of transcends that. Well, so but when you actually come down to a discussion with someone who um, bolts at the book, yeah. then they will be able to quote this or that. that Sort of maybe, maybe, but uh, you know, I, I have a, a friend of mine who is a very senior cleric in the Wahhabi establishment, and uh, I spoke to him about a whole bunch of these issues, and I asked him, what do you think I need to read in terms of Islamic kind of law and theology and philosophy mm -hmm. in order to engage in debate with uh, some of your colleagues? And he said, you don't have to read any of that. I'm like, great, thank you, that's a good start. Uh, he says, all you need to do is observe the way they structure their arguments, and you will find that there are so many inconsistencies, you can bring them down just by observation. Right. I'm like, well, that's an interesting way, because, you know, uh, do I want to take on an entire uh, kind of uh, 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 system, uh, or, or do I just want to ask for clarification about one or two details that then ultimately lead to more interesting you know, discussions? And then you have to have the Arabic to understand... Two months. Their discourse, yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I follow their, I follow their debates. The, the debates are particularly uh, exciting. Yeah. So yeah. often you'll have, you'll have a cleric, two or three clerics, and they will have their liberal counterparts, and they will sort of sit there and they'll say, okay, let's discuss liberalism. And uh, unfortunately, they choose people who are not fully prepared. Uh, so they're a liberal in outlook, but not in, in, uh, they, they're not sort of aware fully of the implications of beliefs or, or, or even what beliefs that they're founding there. The idea that um, we're morally responsible, I think, is what I, personally morally responsible as individuals. Uh, I found that making that argument was a scary one for myself to make. Uh, because I know that so many things that we're told, we end up being told you must make sacrifices for something greater than yourself. But we never, uh, we never actually get to the stage where we ask, well, what is that thing that is greater than myself? Uh, we're told it's the Ummah. We're told it's Islam. We're told it's, you know, we need to fight imperialism and, and everything else. Uh, and it's still not very clear to me. Uh, Islam is, is presented as uh, some kind of corporate entity out there that has interests uh, and there are people who decide those interests for us, and then they tell us where we need to be, what we need to do, how we need to sacrifice ourselves. And I, I, just, I just don't get it. Um, there needs to be a discussion as to, you know, what is the, the nature of this corporate Islam, uh, how, who defined the interests, uh, and how can those interests sometimes look ethical and sometimes they're incredibly political. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it's... It's fine if you're going to ask young men and women to devote themselves to a great cause, but you know, you, we need a little bit, little more clarity on it. Yeah, thanks. I mean, do you think? Uh, I was. I think this is related to what you were talking about, but um, you referred to, to to young uh, to young Muslims, and some of them who experienced the same thing as you would describe early in the book, where you, you know, you sort of went. You went on a roller, a roller coaster experience of, of being in the West and sometimes being in the pub the next day reciting the Quran until 
late at night. And so there are these moments in life where a young person is 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 vulnerable to uh, what I thought you would describe very well as sort of emotional intensity. There's a kind of emotional intensity that can take over a person, a young person, a, um, an impressionable person. Um, and it can be a possession. They can be possessed by all sorts of things, but often it is a sort of religious zeal. Um, and I think you described that very well, just to reiterate, reiterate. But I was wondering, when you think about the youngsters that are sort of converted, radicalized, mm. and, and, and of course we both know what I'm referring to, do you think they're radicalized, they radicalize themselves, or it takes someone else to radicalize them? Um, which I suppose brings us back to the clerics or... No, it's not just clerics. I mean, look, I, again, I don't, don't set me up as, as having a massive argument with the clerics. I think that, you know, <laughs> I, again, they are, they're a very important institution. They're a very important um, resource. Uh, I, I would actually, uh, I, I'd like to engage in discussions with clerics, with those who, you know, sort of set themselves up as arbiters of, of uh, our moral universe. Uh, but, uh, and I think that, you know, with time uh, and with, with sufficient kind of discussion, uh, or perhaps, you know, through the grapevine, they'll pick up on certain things. Uh, perhaps some of their more open-minded colleagues will be happy to discuss. I think that, that they will ultimately come to the table. Uh, you know, th there are certain trends within the clerical establishment. There are mm. certain groups that are much more interested in, in having a principle-based approach to life. And this, again, I get from, from Wahhabi uh, clerics, people who have been completely soaked uh, in, in this kind of thinking, who say it's too rule-based. We need to think more flexibly about, about principle. And these, these principles, it's, it's not as though the principles come from a different universe. They're Islamic principles. It just allows a certain flexibility. It allows a certain understanding of how uh, our faith interacts with a world uh, in, in which uh, we are not the main actors. We are not the main players. The world that we live in is not one that was developed by Islamic technology, Islamist uh, or Muslim scientists or, or a Muslim economy. This is a world that is constructed by uh, the West, essentially. And we find ourselves in it. We try to, you know, sort of, uh, we, we try to uh, separate ourselves from the technologies and the systems that we use. Uh, sorry, separate ourselves uh, from, from touching on any of the principles that those technologies uh, are, are based on. And I think it's an incoherent approach. Uh, and that whole idea that we must reject the principles of, of, on which um, these technologies are based is is incorrect. We say that these are foreign ideas, yeah? So yeah. I will let you take over. Well, I, I just wanted to be able to, to read one or two pa choice passages from the book. Please. Because um, in some sense you arm um, safe, I guess, the principal reader, even if he hasn't read it. <laughs> He's read parts. He's read parts. Well, I wonder if he's read this part because it's a, a wonderful sort of, um, it's a wonderful passage that would stymie anyone who, who's overly obsessed with the prophetic. And this is in your chapter on role models, I think. Yes. And you discuss the prophet and the hadith that provide models, a, a model for the perfect, perfect Muslim behavior in society. I mean, that's just, that's a sort of ideal. Yeah. But obviously with, with, after 14 centuries, that's not possible. But then you quote this passage, which I think is, is an interesting one to have in mind when one is arguing with um, those who are overly obsessed with uh, precedent, the precedent provided by hadith. There are many things the prophet did not do or could not have done. 
And so we have glaring gaps when we try to follow him as a model. Hence the famous statement of a leading Islamic theologian to the effect that he would not eat watermelon because he did not know how the Prophet had eaten it since there was no hadith or saying. This may or may not have been said, but it does point to a style of thinking that is common among certain groups of Muslims. I, I don't know who that person was, if it was Ahmed ibn Hanbal or some ultra-pious uh, <laughs> Sahabi. But it's, it's, it's just an interesting passage that um, is, I think, uh, quite valuable in, in any argument one might have with someone who's sort of forcing precedent down, um, forcing you to accept precedent mm -hmm. without, without sort of accepting that there is an adaptation that needs to take place uh, in the modern world. So it'll be known as the great watermelon argument. Yeah. The great watermelon. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know, in, in those passages, I'm trying to understand for myself, even if in an ideal world, you know, I could do everything that I knew that the Prophet had done, there were a limited number of things that he did. And some of them, if you look over the hadith, you'll feel that maybe they're a little peripheral, or maybe they're mm -hmm. not particularly interesting. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And I think we don't need to be afraid to say, well, actually, there's not that much in that hadith that I can actually do. Right? Uh, and then following on from that to say, okay, well, we live in a world of technology. Um, if I'm to be absolutely, you know, truly faithful in the way some converts are, uh, and you're, you know, I have more of a problem with converts than I do with clerics, to be honest. Um, uh, so, you know, they, there is an obsessive attempt uh, to relive the life of the seventh century uh, when it's absolutely impossible. You see them walking around in airports with, with iPhones. You know, how, how does that make sense? So if we're to be consistent, I think... <laughs> 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 if we're to be consistent, uh, then we've got to really reject all of that and, and turn to the desert. Uh, and so the, the, nobody is presenting a reason why Nobody's presenting solid reasons why or how you can take a 7th century model and live it in the, in the 21st century. And so there must be argument and, as you say, adaptation. There must be a description of the relationship between uh, um, precedent, uh, uh, action, and, and, and environment. Um, and so often you'll find that, you know, there is this phrase that clerics use. They say, well, listen, you know, Islam is an eternal religion and it is uh, appropriate for all times and all places. Um, so, well, that's fantastic. Good. Four dimensions. It, it works in four dimensions. Uh, the, the problem is that they never actually take the next step and tell us how they might see uh, that coming acted out, out in the real world, the world that we live in. Um, so that's my kind of sense of disappointment, but that's also, I think, an opening for uh, you know, students of theology, literature, and philosophy uh, to begin to wonder the connection between actions, uh, beliefs, and, and, and you know, a particular set of circumstances which are very different from the seventh century. Um, I perhaps will ask two more questions and then we can open it up <laughs> to the floor. Um, I, on the subject of the Muslim individual, um, what, how do you see uh, a Muslim individual, a young Muslim individual, being instructed in the kind of individuality that you're, you're pleading for, really? Is it, um, do you see a role for, for literature in that, or the arts? Or? Mm. Yeah, um, not, not off the top of my head. I mean, you know, I've always been interested in literature and the arts uh, for a specific reason. 
but I wanted to have access to uh, the minds of, of the people around me in this part of the world, where in many ways, you know, we say the women wears the veil, but actually there are many ways in which we're all uh, veiled in certain ways. Uh, and, I, and what I wanted to do was I wanted to access other people's kind of thoughts. And one of the ways in which you do that is by encouraging them to write, encouraging them to speak, encouraging them to express themselves uh, artistically. And uh, for, for me, that kind of humanizes the, you know, my, my neighbors. Uh, and again, I, I mentioned this earlier. A few days ago, I gave a, a talk to um, 200 young Emirati men, 15 to 18 years old. And uh, uh, so, so my st kind of stereotypic understanding of uh, Emiratis between the ages of 15 and 18 are that they are wild, unruly, uh, driven by hormones, uh, completely uninterested in anything uh, beyond the, the, the physical or something that, that has an engine that goes very fast. Uh, and so I was like a little hesitant, but I, I went and I spoke the way I'm speaking to you now, and I was amazed. They were such good kids. Uh, they were at a technical college, so again, they, they, these are not the ones who are expected to do brilliantly in life, right? Uh, but they were at a te technical college learning how to become, you know, electricians, engineers, maintenance guys for, you know, airplanes and stuff. And they asked me questions about, um, uh, re uh, sorry, faith and science and the conflict between faith and science and how to resolve that. Uh, they asked me about atheism and how, how I viewed atheism in the Arab world and Islamic world. And, I, you know, th there were a whole bunch of questions like that. And so I was really, um, uh, I was, in, in a sense, I felt that, you know, the bet that I made in writing the book was, was a good bet because there's a human being behind every single one of these uh, happy beards that we wear. Yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you, you, you need to have, you need to demonstrate trust in order to then have trust come back to you. And I don't, I'm not sure that in our societies we demonstrate that trust uh, in the first place. So that's what I'd like to be able to do with the book. The book is, is a, a very um, a big personal step for me. I expose a, a whole bunch of things that you wouldn't expect uh, somebody in government to do. Um, but I do it because I, I want to uh, uh, reach out to, to the young people out there who maybe may be going through the same issues that I went through. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, I mean, that sort of begs the question about if there has been any pushback on that you felt from your, in your sphere. In my sphere? It, no, on the contrary, yeah, actually. Yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I, I wondered about it too, but no, I've been given, you know, the sort of top levels of support. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody ever asked me what was in the book, uh, uh, you know, right up until publication. Uh, after publication, I got calls and, uh, you know, uh, I... I the, the book has been welcomed, so I'm, I'm very pleased with that, and I've been given a, a number of opportunities to speak in public about these issues. I think also that the region is in a, in a certain state uh, where uh, we, we keep talking about kind of counter-extremist uh, counter narratives, and I, I, was, I, I spent a lot of time looking for these narratives myself. And you know that I'm involved in the King's College Center, right. uh, study of political violence and radicalization. What many, what many institutions do is that there is this kind of growing industry to identify radicals, identify radicalization, uh, to think of, you know, sort of specific technological, security, military measures to counter radicalization. But there is no uh, contribution to a set of ideas. And I, I spent a lot of time looking for those ideas and I didn't find them. And so I thought, well, let me try and write it myself. And this is my attempt to, to uh, relocate uh, kind of a... Uh, a, a set of ideas that don't have a, a place to put them down and say, okay, well, if, if I want to, just in, in, 
in, not, not, it's not enjoy, it's integrate myself into a world that is not of my making uh, and, and to reconcile myself with certain compromises that we need to make as Muslims as, and as human beings, uh, then how would, I, how would I structure that? And part of it, part of the structuring of uh, uh, that approach is to say there is no immediate instant in which I or anybody can say I am the perfect Muslim. It's actually a process through time. And you will see that at 14, you're a different Muslim from when you're from 20, from 30. And so uh, what I wanted to kind of focus the attention on, I wanted to focus our attention on the idea that uh, rather than being an instantaneous Muslim to be judged by ISIS in or out, and then executed or, or rewarded with uh, uh, slaves, uh, but actually it is a process through life. Sometimes our faith is weak, sometimes it's strong, our, but our understanding is continually growing. Uh, and or maybe, uh, maybe that's a slightly But I would welcome questions right. <laughs> uh, and comments. Okay, so we'll get... Can I just ask one more question? Yes. Because, which yes. sort of relates to um, what you've just been saying. Or it's about what you haven't just said, actually, because you were talking about a, a young Muslim. And, and, but to some extent, I mean, I read this book, not, I'm not a Muslim, and um, there's a lot of it that I... It seems to me... A lot of it is what you've often thought, but I've never found so well expressed, you know, because it seems to crystallize so many basic um, hunches that as humans and individuals we, we can have about the world around us and, and growing up and becoming individuals. So to what extent have you thought about or did you, you feel it's um, valid to ask you um, that in, in some sense, although this is letters to a young Muslim, really, it's to a young individual... It can be read by... Or even young at heart. Or young at heart, whatever. <laughs> it can be, you know, it's yeah. about, it's about um, human society, any human yeah. society, which has to deal with religious extremism. Mm. Well, I and wasn't going to... I have to be honest, I wasn't going to write a letter to the world. And uh, so there's modesty involved. <laughs> uh, so, so, secondly, I wanted to take... I always want to take responsibility for the identities that I, you know, sort of uh, attach myself to, or the, the ones that define me. And I uh, am defined by um, being Arab uh, and being Muslim. I'm also uh, defined by the fact that I'm not fully Arab. Uh, and so these, these are sort of three very important elements of my life. And it's from those elements that I speak. Um, the, the, the larger original version of the book uh, considered the issue of, of Arab identity as well, so the overlap of Islamic and Arab identities. And uh, one of the key things that led me to thinking about the importance of the individual is because when we talk about uh, uh, Arab identities, there's a sense in which there is a pure race, and then, and then we judge each other, and we say, well, you're not quite pure enough. Your tribe wasn't actually that respectable. You know, you crossed the seas 100 years ago, and so, you know. And so I realized that actually what we're doing is we're continually discounting the other side and, the, and, and our, our friends and neighbors. And one day it occurred to me that actually the pure of the pure are a tiny minority. So there must be some way in which the rest of us, the impure, can actually sort of find dignity in our lives, right? So it isn't in, in genetic uh, uh, kind of identity and it's not ethnic identity. 
it, it has to be uh, something, something more basic, which is the individual. Because ultimately, you're, not, you're, le you're left with nothing but yourself when you look in the mirror, yeah? Mm -hmm. So um, that, that, that's why I wanted to focus on the individual in the Arab and the Islamic world. And then the idea kind of developed that maybe as individuals, we're not taking full moral responsibility for our decisions. We're saying, cleric, tell me what I need to do in such and such a circumstance. Uh, you know, I, I'm, occasionally you'll come across a cleric who has asked for a fatwa and he will respond, hey, you know what, this is not an issue for me, it's not an issue for, uh, for religion, sort it out yourself. That's, a, that's an interesting approach. I wonder what the world would look like or our Islamic world would look like when some of the clerics would actually push back and say, what if you took responsibility for that decision and made up your own mind? Right. Thank you. All right. So I just... just... <laughs> Um, well, just to turn that, that, that question and, and ask it another way, the people who read this book are people like Shaif, right? even if he hasn't read, yeah. read parts of it, <laughs> but also um, um, folks in America, folks in England, folks, anybody reads English, and it, has, yeah. it does seem to have had a, an extraordinary success uh, and reached a broad readership. So, so it's not only teaching... A young yeah. Muslim to be a responsible teaching uh, it's getting worse <laughs> <laughs> but teaching um, the world really about some important things about Islam so in that sense it has to it, it would be it would be ironic if uh, this gave Islam a better image in the West um, but uh, yeah I for me <laughs> The, the fact that a number of you have actually bought the book and read it is, is uh, already success enough. Uh, and I'm, I'm very honored that uh, anybody would buy it and, and read it. Uh, I've, I've received messages uh, online from people uh, who've said, you know, thank you for writing it. And again, that, that again just makes me feel uh, I've done something very worthwhile. Um, it's, it's, not a, it's not a complete kind of uh, philosophy of life. It's, uh, it's not a theology. It's, a, it's very humbly, I would say, a set of... Uh, suggestions on how to approach not just religion but uh, issues of power, independence uh, and, and the big issue of manipulation by others um, and uh, if, uh, if, if this can be the beginning of a discussion for, uh, for people and, and they can write something better I would welcome that and what I would do is I would go back to climbing mountains okay. <laughs> five years thank you You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.